just first want to thank the CMS committee, particularly Jim, Ian, William, uh, for hosting me here today. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be, <coughs> to be speaking here. Uh, it's, it feels like I'm home at MIT, where I've been for most of my master's and dissertation work. But what Jim didn't mention is that I also went away. I didn't include that in my bio. I also did went, I went away from uh, MIT to work in industry for a couple of years. I had a startup company doing open source software for biomedical research, uh, mostly for publicly funded research. And it was um, a, a way for me to think about how to operationalize a number of things that I've been thinking through in terms of intellectual property rights and creative commons in a different space. Uh, during that time, I um, began to do some human rights work in the Palestinian territories where a lot of the work that I'll be showing today somehow nurtured, even though exclusively I'm not working in those spaces in terms of my scholarship, um, it was a chance for me to understand the complexity of, of media and resilience, as I'll talk about, um, which I hope connects very well to some of the civic media initiatives uh, within the CMS program. Um, the focus of my talk today will be on creative DIY cultures, do-it-yourself cultures. And I'll, I'll try to look at it through the lens of media studies and um, uh, some of pedagogical frameworks that I've been uh, examining. Uh, I'm back at MIT for the last uh, two years as a research fellow, first in the uh, Department of Urban Studies and Planning, and, and now as a fellow in the Arts, Culture, and Technology program. And both of these places have helped me really anchor my thinking about this work as I'm teaching it and, uh, and, and doing it as part of my research. Now, just to give you a roadmap for the, um, the talk, uh, I'm gonna start by looking at notions of media and resilience. Uh, resilience is a space that I'm very intrigued by and I think has a lot to offer as we think about civic media engagement. Um, I'll try and connect the, the emerging work in resilience back to uh, uh, work in civic media through the talk and particularly towards the end. Uh, I'll, look at, I'll draw from some of the um, work in critical media literacy and participatory culture uh, and see how that sort of helps understand and explain the emergence of these DIY do-it-yourself cultures that are, that are you know, uh, present in our society. Um, I'll then switch to what's more contemporary, just in the last uh, decade or so, what I'm calling network DIY communities that have really sprung up and how you can understand them through this lens. Um, I'll just show a couple of case studies uh, from two DIY communities. One of them is called Think Cycle, which is what I developed as my dissertation work 10 years ago. Um, and Instructables, which was a, a, you know, came after Think Cycle, was sort of influenced by Think Cycle and is now grown to a community of half a million people around the world. Um, I'll then try to sort of draw from this analysis to think about what's emerging among marginalized youths today, the kind of DIY cultures we can expect to see and are already happening. And I'll just point out three um, illustrative case studies, DIY programming, DIY video, and the most fun, in my mind, DIY kites, um, which I've done some work on uh, in Gaza this summer. Um, and I'll, I'll try to use those to sort of help us think through a taxonomy for what I'm now calling youth civic DIY practices. Uh, they're not just DIY, but they have a civic component to it. And, and I think of them as practices <coughs> more than just a culture. So we'll try and see if that's a helpful framework to ground uh, what I believe is a new form of critical citizenship and resilience 
that is emerging among youth today, uh, or it certainly needs to be fostered and enriched through the work we do here. Uh, and I'll just point out towards the end the work I'm doing with Department of Play and future directions I'd like to take. So we'll come back to this roadmap at least halfway through the talk. Now the pictures you see there uh, are taken partly in, uh, in Gaza uh, during workshops I conducted and film work that I've been doing. And also the last one down there is a slum uh, in the northern uh, state of Gujarat in India uh, where kids have basically made their own roller skates from um, uh, worn tires and, uh, and leather. So there's, there's the thriving DIY culture around us. It's a question of recognizing and understanding how it works. So let me start with an area that I think is, is helpful to examine first, which is resilience. If you look at the body of work in, in psychosocial analysis uh, and sociology of resilience in children and adolescents, I think it's very helpful uh, as a marker for how we think of civic media as well. Um, a good definition of resilience uh, comes from the work of Luther and Rutter, which says it's the attainable attainment of desirable outcomes, social outcomes, and emotional adjustment despite exposure to risk. And risk is typically defined as some sort of psychosocial adversity uh, when there are stressors that might hinder normal functioning. Now, Teresa Brattencourt at the Harvard School of Public Health, who I've been collaborating a bit with, uh, takes a more ecological approach. She thinks of resilience outcomes as dynamic and they're influenced by both protective and uh, factors and, and processes. These tend to be internal, psychosocial, as well as the role of family, peers, community, and what I'm saying, media around uh, uh, the child. So you have to take an ecological approach to understanding these issues. Um, now, resilience comes from the root word resile, which means springing back or uh, going to a normal level of functioning. But my question is, what about new ways of functioning? Some of the children that I've been working with uh, I think are demonstrating new ways of adapting to their environments, uh, new ways of mental and functional competence that most psychosocial analysts don't always recognize in their work. There are exceptions, and people like Strumpfer and Brian Barbar have been examining this new sense of coherence that emerges uh, by children undergoing violence and conflict. Um, and that's very critical and has a lot to do with narrative as well. Uh, Barbar talks about potential positive outcomes. He's one of the first uh, sociologist who's, who's pointed at this notion of positive resilience, where traumatic events might actually stimulate positive adaptive responses uh, among children. And this is very intriguing. So Brian did this uh, landmark study um, in Bosnia and in, and in the Palestinian territories in the West Bank and Gaza in the 90s. Um, as, as you know, um, Bosnia-Herzegovina uh, had been through uh, a, a pretty traumatic uh, fragmentation after the war. And when he examined Bosnian children and youths, um, they were clearly very traumatized. Their memories uh, were full of terror, and, and they were giving dysfunctional accounts of themselves and their families. Um, they could not explain the war. Even today, if you go back to uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, you, and Serbia, for example, if you ask children why the war happened, uh, what were the causes, uh, it's very hard for them to explain. You get m many different narratives from the war. Now what was intriguing was when Brian did this work in the Palestinian territories, particularly in Gaza, he found the youth were, were remarkably absent of negative functioning. And they were giving very intense, passionate narratives of the conflict. Now, uh, one would argue they were very different kinds of wars that happened, different kinds of <coughs> violence. Uh, but some of the phenomena that the children dealt with uh, were, were similar. Um, but why did these groups respond so differently towards violence and conflict? Um, that's a very important question. And 
And there are really three possible hypotheses, some of which Brian sort of uh, you know, points to, but some of which I'm sort of thinking through in my own work. Um, one, I believe, has to do with the coherence that I mentioned earlier. And this coherence, I think, emerges from this extended narrative of conflict. And it's an intergen intergenerational narrative that children, particularly in the Palestinian territories, have really understood over the years, uh, which was missing in the case of Bosnia-Herzegovina. Uh, the war happened very quickly in Bosnia. Uh, families were, were getting fractionalized. It wasn't clear why the war started. And these are very communal narratives. So I think this provides an anchoring, uh, uh, a psychosocial anchoring to children. And being able to produce these narratives, as I'll show in my work, is also very critical for that kind of anchoring. Now these, these become protective factors, uh, particularly when you involve <coughs> the larger communal uh, processes, which include the family, their peers, the community, um, and subgroups that they are constantly working with. Um, this is very w well understood in the, in the psychosocial <laughs> literature. Um, but the third factor I think is very intriguing, which, which Brian mentioned in his work, which I was very surprised to find. He found that there was this active engagement through youth activism movement, movements that children were involved in that allowed them to transform victimization to possible resistance and, and advocacy. Um, and I think this points to the kinds of things we talk about in terms of citizenship uh, and civic agency among youth, which we should examine when we look at media uh, uh, engagement as well. So I just wanted to put these out there. Um, I think as I do ongoing studies, some of these uh, hypotheses will bear out, some of them might not. So if we want to examine DIY cultures, it's important to look at a framework based on media literacy and participatory culture. So I'm just going to kind of look at a couple of key folks who've been influencing this area. Now, Paulo Ferreira's work in Brazil uh, in the early 70s was very critical in informing um, <coughs> notions of critical literacy. Uh, his now famous book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, uh, has been a, a sort of a, a manual and a, a toolkit for educational reformers today. Uh, Augusto Boal was deeply influenced by his work. Uh, he was working in Brazil, also in Peru, with what he called the theater of the oppressed. And this was a way that he developed of working with marginalized communities uh, to support participatory engagement. He used theater. He also used uh, a newspaper as a form of having people critically reflect on the media and, and speak about uh, their own narratives through that. Uh, and he also used photography in those days, which is very little has been written about. Um, now, in parallel, there was a body of work that child developmental psychologists and educators were doing. Uh, and this has to do with work by Jean Piaget. I think he was one of the early ones who looked at child-centered learning. Uh, and he was very interested in the notion of how children, through their experiential learning and social interaction, were developing new forms of cognition and morality. Um, and he felt that educators need to make children at the forefront of being inventors and creators rather than conformists. Now, his, his work was also uh, contemporarily being uh, examined and, and in some cases uh, uh, deferred by Vygotsky's work, who looked at cultural factors among children and learning, and also psychologies of play and imagination. Finally, when you look at Seymour Papert's work in the 1980s, now what's intriguing is Seymour and many of these people were doing their work in very difficult times, during dictatorships, during war, World War II, uh, and Seymour's case, actually he was living in South Africa uh, during, post -apart during uh, the apartheid era 
and he was a, he was an activist in that space as well. So a lot of their political engagement influenced their learning theories and philosophies. So he was he was drawing from the work of Piaget um, in looking at constructionist learning as a tool for engagement. Uh, for example, Logo was one of the most um, uh, famous uh, environments that came out of uh, Seymour Papert's work. And what's interesting is that Logo is no longer being taught readily in schools today, when in the 70s and 80s, especially in the 80s, Logo was quite popular. Um, and, and this form of using shared digital artifacts in creative play is something Mitch Resnick and Edith Ackerman have, have uh, talked a lot about in their work, and uh, clearly have done, uh, as, as you've seen in the Media Lab. I think I'm missing some of the slide at the bottom, but I'll just uh, see if it doesn't affect us. Um, now, if you look at participatory media and convergence culture, this is something that Henry Jenkins has written a lot about in his writings. Uh, uh, but also, there's a body of work that looks at multiliteracies and multimodal literacies, increasingly as children are exposed to multiple kinds of, uh, uh, of media, sound, uh, video, photography, and internet culture. Uh, Mimi Ito and Dana Boyd did this landmark article um, through ethnographic studies they did with children in, uh, in online culture. They, they examined kids and especially young girls uh, and how they were uh, sort of inhabiting uh, uh, MySpace and Facebook and these sorts of network communities. So they, they called their study hanging out, messing around and geeking out. Those are the kinds of things they observed uh, in their work. Now Yasmin Kafai talks about these informal learning spaces and communities that actually affect uh, children's own creative media practices and competencies. And finally, if you look in the most recent literature in the last two or three years, you're finding people looking at DIY media and crafts as a form of creative learning and creative media engagement uh, from Knobel's work and also Leah Buckley's work at the Media Lab. So when we think of creative DIY cultures, uh, they actually have a very long history uh, in our society. Uh, what is DIY? DIY could be considered do-it-yourself uh, hobbies, but I like to look at it uh, through a lens of political subcultures. In all of the instances that I, I looked at DIY, uh, there has been this notion of uh, social political engagement is where it started. So, for example, in radio, amateur radio hobbyists in the 1920s were the first ones to uh, adopt uh, this form of DIY practice, and we're using it to sort of transmit and broadcast uh, things that were, were prohibited, for example. Uh, especially in South America, where pirate radio stations uh, took a very strong role uh, in, in, in revolutionary movements. And Haring did some study on this uh, work as well, as he compared these radio movements uh, throughout the century. Now, we all know of hobby electronics kit building uh, and, and media equipment in the 80s and 70s. But what's interesting is how it was influenced by and influenced uh, in both directions the kind of punk rock and rave music subcultures in, during that time. They were very much protesting uh, existing norms uh, rather than sort of fitting within those. Now, when it comes to design innovation, Victor Papnik um, was one of the first to write about uh, design for the real world, where he was looking at these social phenomena of design that was happening. Uh, he was one of the few people who started the appropriate technology movement in the 70s. Uh, and when I examined this work um, in India, uh, I met Professor Anil Gupta, who was since on my dissertation committee, who was essentially looking at how grassroots innovators in India were also uh, doing this kind of socio-ecological innovation in their own communities. 
and how that was spreading throughout the villages. So there's this notion of DIY culture that's always been present in these places and, and needs to be recognized uh, and how it spreads in contemporary media. Now in more contemporary time, we have the free software movement an open source uh, that Stallman and Raymond have famously written about. But it's been influenced also by hacking, gaming, and, uh, and more recently, uh, the Creative Commons has, has sort of used that approach in the kind of licensing schemes that they've developed. Uh, the last one that you can't see at the bottom, but is to do with remixing uh, cultures, um, which emerged in the uh, 90s. And these were also uh, kind of emerging from mocking political uh, characters on screen, uh, and the DIY cultures that I'll mention have a, in some cases, a very anti-consumer ethos. Um, so, so the politics of this is very interesting to recognize and, and evaluate. Now that brings us to today. Just in the last, I would say, five to ten years, we've seen a kind of uh, emergence uh, of DIY communities online. And when you look at Henry Jenkins sort of really examining the kind of video music and gaming cultures in the remix communities, uh, when you look at product design, electronics, crafts, all of them have sub-communities that I've just sort of documented here. Uh, these are just a few examples of the most prominent ones like Instructables, Etsy, Dorkbot, Craftster. And in many cases, there's a high gender uh, uh, ratio of women participating in these communities. For example, in the Ravelry and Craftster, uh, in a study done by Churchill and Torrey, uh, over 60, 70% are women participating. So these, these are uh, fairly widespread communities now. Uh, my favorite one is the IKEA furniture hacking community, which, which takes standardized IKEA components, uh, which you can find everywhere in the world, and, and sort of puts out hacks uh, and in some cases, artistic interventions on, on IKEA. And in, in my area of interest, which is children, uh, the communities I've been looking at include Scratch, for example, which has really uh, been nurtured in the last two years. Uh, and there's a number of other ones that are uh, starting to come online as well. So just one screenshot of Instructables. Um, this is an example of the kind of thing you might find there, how to booby trap your, your um, boss. And um, uh, what you see on, on the site is over 500,000 people uh, constantly looking for and contributing these kinds of DIY projects. It's become a, it's, its own form of, of creative media on the site. And what's interesting is the way that you can watch the whole process of, of how this kind of uh, uh, little inventive uh, tool could be constructed. Uh, you can actually walk through it uh, uh, and, and, and see what other people uh, have done with it. And in some cases, you can see the parts inventory and other related uh, subparts to that that you can find and, and, and reuse. So it's very much <coughs> a community of people who are interested in reusing, creative, creating, and adapting uh, these practices online. And the fact that there's a half a million people on this community is a testament to how quickly it spread. This was started about five years ago by Media Lab students uh, who since moved to the West Coast. Uh, both of them uh, I work closely with. And what I think inspired this was, was ThinkCycle. Uh, ThinkCycle was a platform that I developed um, during my doctoral work uh, at the Media Lab. And it was meant to be a web-based collaborative system. It was, it's been publicly accessible since 2000. Uh, which, which was meant to support distributed communities around problem domains. So while Instructables is sort of a do-it-yourself anything, um, ThinkCycle was designed uh, particularly for problem domains in developing countries uh, uh, on, on social entrepreneurship and things of that sort. 
Um, so we, we built this large site. It was mirrored all over the world. And we wanted to provide low bandwidth access to the site. Uh, it was built using an Oracle database. Uh, I spent half my time writing SQL queries. Uh, in those days, uh, it was very hard to build these very large systems and, and make them scalable. Today, it's much, much simpler. Um, but the challenge for us was to interface with non-governmental organizations as partners in posing design challenges that uh, engineering design students in, in the West could start to work on. And even in uh, countries like Brazil uh, and Bangalore, India, where we ran design studios. So we asked NGOs like the Soros Foundation, uh, uh, organizations in India, and local domain experts like Amy Smith at MIT and Susan Murcott to, to develop design challenges that we would then have students taking our studio courses solve and then document in the online site. Uh, we ran a series of design courses uh, over a two or three year period. Uh, the studio that I developed with Mitch Resnick actually at the time and several students uh, like Saul Griffith and Neil McGuire was called Design That Matters. It was meant to be a three-part studio where they had to identify problem scenarios during IAP. Uh, in the studio actually develop uh, a working product in conjunction with an NGO and then document that through ThinkCycle and use ThinkCycle as a means for sharing and critiquing and getting peer review. Uh, in the summer, they would go off and design uh, a final version, uh, do some field work, go back, redesign it. And in the fall, they would uh, think about social entrepreneurship. How do you take these things out more widely? And so on. Now, what's intriguing is that this sort of three-part approach has become now what's uh, very popular at MIT. Uh, that, uh, it's, a, it's a series of courses uh, that Amy Smith has been teaching and Joost uh, Bonson has been teaching uh, at MIT. So it's, it's, it's quite an interesting moment that 10 years later uh, has gotten far more um, uh, traction within students. Uh, we also uh, ran uh, development by design conferences uh, at MIT and in Bangalore uh, to bring this community together. So the physicality of, of, of doing this kind of in inventive work was very important. Building social connections was very important. And learning for, from practitioners and, and uh, NGOs on the ground was very important. Uh, this is just to give you a schematic of, of how ThinkCycle was structured. Uh, they were creative editors and domain experts who would mentor particular themes like um, low-cost uh, um, um, design for cholera, uh, rehydration therapy, or water treatment, or low-cost energy. And then we would have design teams at CMU, at MIT, in Bangalore, uh, developing projects around that, and peer review by stakeholders, all happening online. Um, and as part of my research, I was not only examining the way the social process of design was happening on the site, but also how intellectual property was being negotiated. I won't get into this slide too much, but there was this whole process of how people would share their intellectual property in the beginning, and then over time, they might choose to uh, make it public or make it closed or patented in some cases. So when the stakes were very high, they would in some cases decide to patent. And I did a whole study around how this whole process of intellectual property moved uh, uh, as the process of design happened uh, among students. And this is very important as I'll connect it back to DIY culture. So what are some key lessons emerging from ThinkCycle and the DIY studies that I've seen recently? Um, authorship and storytelling is something that comes up, <coughs> which ties into why DIY, we should be thinking of DIY as a new form of critical media. Uh, DIY contributors become authors, and sh their sharing takes a form of storytelling uh, through this kind of creative rhetoric, as you saw in Instructables as well. Um, there is a kind of situated context within which design happens. I think we should recognize that. 
Uh, these design communities tend to be physically co-located, like crafts communities, but they're extending themselves in this new online context. But those social uh, norms and, and, and roles and practices within their own communities still persist. And they, they kind of change and adapt those in an online context. And there's been a lot of work that needs to be done in studying how that happens. Now, as in open source movements, these aren't just a uh, distributed community of hackers. As we saw in Linux, uh, there were a number of key domain experts and, and key nodes uh, in these hacking communities that actually drove design and drove important decisions that happened. And this is very true of DIY communities. There's these expert amateurs who are part of a cave of socially knit makers uh, that, that emerge in the community. They provide mentoring, support, and teaching. Uh, and this is very true of all of the DIY communities that you'll, you'll see. There's also an informality in the way <coughs> unplanned, informal, asynchronous conversations happen. Asynchronous design happens. Uh, it's kind of its ongoing design space that you see in DIY communities and a group memory of that design space unfolding online. And the last thing to mention is this issue of social reciprocity and finding ways to support communal property rights that some DIY communities do better than others. And this really helps in sharing and reuse. Uh, so that's something to, to keep in mind. So just at the halfway point in my talk, I just want to make sure I'm not uh, going too slow or too fast. But we've covered sort of what the general social phenomena that we're seeing uh, in DIY culture today and the network communities that are emerging. Now I wanted to use that as a basis to then think through what's happening among youth today in <coughs> DIY cultures. And I'll try to use three illustrative examples of programming, video, and kites, and then think about a taxonomy that emerges from that. So each of these has a widespread <coughs> so set of communities. Now, even in DIY programming, you find a number of platforms out there like Alice, Scratch, Processing, uh, and some of which are more child-centric. So I'm going to be examining Scratch uh, as the example here. A lot's been written about Scratch, particularly at the Media Lab, and also by Yasmin Kafai uh, at University of Pennsylvania. And it's not only is Scratch a tool, but it's also a new community that's emerging. Just in the last two years, uh, Scratch, by the way, if you don't, some of you don't know, is this visual programming language uh, that most um, uh, educators have been using very recently uh, uh, to provide a way of expression, mathematics, and, and production um, uh, that's very similar to the ways Logo and other programming languages were constructed for kids in, in the past. But what's intriguing today is that Scratch also <coughs> is trying to tap into an online community of, of practitioners, kids, and domain experts. And if you can see from this, um, uh, the screenshot which I took yesterday, there's over 1.5 million projects on Scratch today. I don't know how many kids are on Scratch. Uh, uh, some estimates might be uh, four or 500,000 kids who are already uh, using Scratch. So it's quite a formidable community. So what I did, instead of um, trying to do a comprehensive analysis of Scratch, which some studies have begun to do, um, I decided to talk to one practitioner. Um, and this is a young uh, uh, teacher I met. His name is Alec Resnick. He has no relationship to Mitch Resnick, as I, as I persistently found out. Um, <laughs> he, he did his um, um, uh, graduate work in physics and math, and then decided to teach uh, at Tufts. Um, he's also started this new thing called Sprout. It's this kind of community DIY space in Davis Square that some of you might know about. It's a really great space. Um, so he teaches these Scratch workshops. 
uh, both to kids and to uh, um, you know uh, people in the community, uh, retired citizens, and people who just want to come and learn about a way of programming. And he gave me a number of case studies, but I just thought I'd draw from one example, which was Max. Uh, Max is this eight-year-old kid that you can see. Um, he's extremely excited, wants to please his dad all the time, but just is definitely afraid of math. You can't get him to touch math. All his teachers have tried to get him to take math. It's just, you know, it's been a really st a big struggle for him. And what, what Alec found in having um, Max uh, use this environment is that Max was starting to use a whole different way of critically thinking about, uh, you know, everyday physics and, and uh, mathematical formulations through this visual programming environment, reusing other people's examples and code and creating these very simple performances with uh, these kind of puppet animations that he could show to his dad, to his friends at school. He wasn't thinking of it as math anymore. He was thinking of it as just performing and as constructing something creatively. And, and it, was, it would take Alec kind of revisiting this in a mathematical framework to say, well, wasn't that uh, addition? Wasn't that um, uh, uh, you know, combining these mathematical elements? And, and, it, and it gave Max the confidence then to resituate his learning um, as a kind of uh, conventional mathematical form. So I think Max was just one of many examples of kids who were kind of on the fringe of, of educational uh, sort of access who were then able to use a tool like this creatively. But what's happening? when you have all these kids actually using an online DIY community um, like Scratch. Well, what Alec has been saying is that a lot of these kids are doing very compelling work and they're using this online environment as an alternative place to learn challenging concepts. Uh, the Scratch community becomes a safe space to talk about their, their creative uh, um, expression and recast their relationship to formal education. So. That's a very interesting phenomenon that's happening uh, on, on the Scratch community as, as well. The website itself provides a lot of scaffolding or support in supporting these kinds of social interactions. Um, uh, Alec noticed that kids were fluidly switching between gameplay and design uh, back and forth <coughs> all the time. So they would, they would download something, play it, they would make some tweaks to it and re-upload it and, and continue. And they weren't thinking of that as programming so much as just tweaking somebody's work and, and trying something new and playing, which is a very important part of creative engagement. Um, so I, I won't get into the interpersonal relationships that are developing, but that's a very critical part of that online community as well. So in my own work, I've been studying DIY video, um, <coughs> a form of DIY video through work I've been doing in the Palestinian territories with, with kids in refugee camps. Um, an initiative I started called Voices Beyond Walls since 2006 has been running these workshops all over the West Bank and most recently in Gaza. Um, it starts out as a capacity building project where we train local staff from community centers um, in about seven or eight different refugee camps uh, where we are working uh, on a regular basis. Uh, and then we conduct a three to, f a three to four week workshop uh, with these youth trainers in their own camps and their communities. So these workshops go through a whole process of uh, teaching neighborhood mapping, storyboarding, script writing, uh, photography, video, and, and digital media and editing production. This is quite a, you know, a large rapport of things to be learning um, for kids that are in the ages of 10 to 16. Uh, but we've always felt that this kind of cross-modal, cross-sensory approach was going to be very critical to get them to express themselves uh, in a space like this. 
And I've begun to conduct some uh, evaluation work and, uh, and research around this. Uh, so the kids often uh, exhibit and screen their work in local communities and internationally. Uh, just to give you a, a quick thread through how this works, uh, this was one workshop I conducted um, two years ago in Jerusalem. Uh, we had kids in the old city of Jerusalem and in the <coughs> refugee camp, um, uh, both doing neighborhood exploration with each other in their own neighborhoods. They would then come back and write narratives and storyboards uh, that you know, they would develop as fictional stories out of these uh, explorations. And their mapping and photography would then be used to create these very interesting maps of the space which they would discuss uh, with their own uh, communities, with, their own, with kids from those neighborhoods as a kind of civic engagement about issues that they're seeing of security, mobility, and so on. And finally, they would do filming and production uh, and editing of their work uh, towards the end of the workshop. We would then exhibit all of this work uh, from all of the different workshops we conduct uh, in, in one place, so there would be a festival we ran. This was, I think, in 2008, uh, when we had kids from five or six different um, workshops and refugee camps showing their work to each other. This is very important, as is uh, these exhibitions we would do um, in their own communities and uh, across the region. And we would have kids themselves come and present their work as a form of self-esteem. Uh, and we would also work with arts foundations in the city. For example, this is work in Jerusalem, where we would have a foundation project this work um, and have kids uh, and local communities sort of think about taking back their streets uh, and projecting narratives in their streets. Uh, finally, there's an online component where we would publish a lot of the video work the kids would do, both on this online website and on YouTube. And a lot of the kids over the years have been contributing new videos uh, on the YouTube channel we've set up. But what I'd like to do is actually build a sort of more enclosed community uh, platform for these kids to not only contribute, but also remix, share, and rework narratives uh, that are coming out of DIY. Now, I've learned a lot of different lessons in the process of doing this, and I won't get through all of those, but I think the kind of media literacy that's happening in these cross-modal uh, forms is very critical. Um, developing the new forms of aesthetics and visual culture among these kids, drawing from what they already know through intergenerational learning is very important. Um, story writing was probably the most difficult thing we had to do with these kids, and we need better digital media tools to support the whole story writing process through digital media production, which even today, uh, there aren't very many good digital media and story writing tools that you can find. It's a real frustration for educators uh, who are trying to work in this space. I think the technologies of consumer uh, video production are moving much faster than the kinds of frameworks and platforms that have been developed, especially for youth. Um, and I think what's intriguing is what's happening with the hidden psychological trauma that is emerging that we've been trying to tackle among some of these children. Uh, we're working in very difficult settings, and I'm always mindful of what effect that has when you have children talking about narratives in their communities. How are you unlocking new traumas? How should we be careful about that? So we always work with uh, drama therapists and dance um, uh, sort of experts who come and work with our kids and try to understand how to approach these issues with them very carefully. In most cases, what we try to do is to help them think beyond the occupation into more imaginary narratives um, and stories that help them tap other kinds of issues that, they're, that may be more creative and interesting. Um, but this brings me to issues of resilience, which I'll get into a little later. Um, now, clearly, we need to find new kinds of modes of collaborative engagement and spatial media narrative that um, 
aren't available to these kids that uh, would be really interesting in, uh, in workshops like this. Um, so just this year, I started to think about a study I would do um, that would look at notions of resilience and media among these kids. What I was trying to think through is how do you understand the efficacy of these kinds of participatory media projects? What effect does it have on creative expression, cultural identity, advocacy um, among these children in conflict? And what do these methods, the kinds of methods that we're conducting and, and developing, reveal about the perceptions of youth and conflict? What do the films themselves reveal, the photography reveal about how they're coping with transforming and adapting to these conditions of violence? Uh, this is very intriguing. So media, the kind of media they're producing could itself be a form of study, a form of, uh, uh, of ethnographic analysis that we haven't really done. And the last question for me, which is a much longer question, is do these grassroots media initiatives form, do actually support any form of civic engagement and political representation? Now, these children in the Palestinian territories, for example, represent 60% of society. They're an active citizen, but they, what kind of representation do they have in, their, in that society? It's, it's very minimal. Uh, so does using DIY media actually support a new form of representation where they can speak about these to their community leaders and, and, and so on? That's an interesting question we have to pose. Now, there's four potential hypotheses going into studies like this. I'm just beginning the pilot. I started the pilot this summer. But these are four hypotheses that I sort of talked through as I developed the study with researchers at this <coughs> the Harvard School of Public Health who've been doing this kind of work on media and resilience among children in Uganda and other child soldiers as well. And one possibility is that children are already very traumatized. And all of these techniques of participatory media have no significant effect. And I think that's something we should recognize. It may very well be true for a good proportion of the kids who are very traumatized, who have PTSD-like syndromes. Uh, another possibility is that they're already resilient. They've been through war. They're, 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 you know, uh, they've already adapted. So these participatory in interventions have no significant effect. We, can, we should consider that as another hypothesis. The third one, which I'm hoping is a more optimistic one for our work, is whoops. Okay, I don't want time machine now. Um, uh, is that they might actually show some indication of coping, pro-social attitudes, expression, engagement, um, the kinds of work that Brian Barber also was looking at partly in his work. Um, but this has to be perceived by themselves, their families, their extended community teachers. So we have to design our, our surveys very carefully and ha they have to be culturally relevant indicators. Uh, the final one that I threw in at the end as I was working in Gaza this summer is what if we have a comparison group? And we developed a comparison group of children doing dance. So they weren't doing media production in any form. They were simply doing, we, we couldn't have a control group doing nothing because that's just very hard to sort of evaluate. So we, we had to pick a form as a comparison group. And what if the kids doing dance show better outcomes than the kids doing media? Um, what happens then? Well, it could be that the kids doing media, because of the, the stress of the intervention, <coughs> it's a very long workshop, you know, um, five days a week, uh, may bring new stressors. It might create new traumas by invoking new kinds of narratives that um, uh, we're producing with these kids that, that m bring violence back to their memories. That might actually sh um, you know, show some indicators that are counter to what we expected. So those are the four kinds of hypotheses one could expect. Now, what did I do to sort of try and tease these out? 
Um, I developed a study um, partly in conjunction with researchers at the School of Public Health, but also more importantly with psychosocial experts and, uh, and child counseling experts in Gaza when I was there uh, for seven weeks this summer. Uh, what I asked them was how, in your experience, are you understanding the ways children are traumatized, how are they coping, and so on. And then I did a focus group with women um, whose children we were hoping to bring into the, the, into the actual study. Uh, I met with these women, they spoke Arabic, and I had translators working with me. And I asked them uh, their own cultural indicators of, uh, of coping, of adjustment, of, of how children were rebelling, how children were, uh, were speaking up and, and, and being delinquent in their own families, um, and what were indicators of success for them in their own communities. And I used those cultural indicators as part of our study when we did focus group evaluations with the kids and studies. So this, this slide, I, it's, it's very dense, but I just want to give you a, a brief overview of it. We did two sets of um, groups, one in the West Bank and one in Gaza, Two, uh, two almost identical workshops that two different teams were leading uh, with about 20 trainers in each place and about 25 kids, uh, 20 to 25 kids in each workshop. <coughs> we also had a comparison group of kids doing dance or some other activity in each setting. And then we did a, a kind of pre-study um, and a post-study with each uh, group. We did ongoing evaluations. We had the kids do DIY video evaluations with each other, asking each other what they thought. And if I had time, I would show you some of the video that they uh, you know, created. And then we did follow-up analysis and so on. So, and this, this study is continuing. Um, I'm afraid I don't have detailed results to share with you because we are still analyzing the data. Most of the data is in Arabic. And it's long written uh, subjective responses by the kids. It's not you know, uh, uh, sort of these numerical responses. And I'm trying to work with an Arabic-speaking researcher at School of Public Health to analyze this data with me. Uh, and, and we're going to be going back to do follow-up work in June uh, as part of the study. <laughs> but I think some intuitions I have about the work is that clearly the kids in, in the media production group were very much engaged in, uh, in expressing themselves in ways that uh, their own families and communities noticed. Uh, and that's something that will come out, I think, uh, as we continue doing the study. Now, and this ties into this other subculture of kite making I found, that this is the last one I'm going to show, um, that, that we discovered when we were in Gaza this summer. So the way I discovered this was I was working with my youth team, and I said, well, show me some examples of, of, of creative um, enterprise within your own communities. And they said, well, kite making is a big one. And I said, well, why don't we make a documentary? about kite making and so I trained my youth participants and trainers and put them in multiple teams to film a documentary. I also had a filmmaker from San Francisco who joined me and, uh, and we worked, we're, we're working now on a feature length documentary. And part of the genesis of the documentary was also um, the UN was organizing a, a large festival on, on kites uh, in July and they wanted to break the Guinness Book of World Records for most kites flown. So we said, well why don't we get, you know, in the um, get into this right away and interview everybody before the actual event happens, uh, trainers, kids who are going to be participating, and get the backstory as part of our documentary. And then we'll have our six production teams uh, spread all over the, um, uh, uh, the actual festival and film what actually happens, so, which is exactly what happened. But before we did this, um, I decided to work with one group of kids 
in northern Gaza, which is in a, it's kind of a frontier no-go zone, it's a buffer zone, where most Palestinians aren't allowed to go. Uh, but these families live there. And the one thing that the kids can do there um, is kite making and kite flying. And they're very, very go good at it. So Hassan and, uh, and Amira are two kids that um, they're both siblings. And I, I talked to them about their work and, uh, and, and interviewed them. And as part of the documentary, they're featured characters in the film. So what I'm going to do quickly is show you a video of what they said. Whoops, I think I just launched something else. Okay. So I'm just going to play you maybe two or three minutes of this, and I might. Uh, this is a 10-minute scene. We have over 50, 40 or 50 hours of footage that we shot uh, with six different cameras when we were there, uh, two professional high-end DV cameras and, and four consumer cameras, um, including one camera that was, uh, um, including one camera that was mounted on a kite. So what I challenged the kids to do as part of filming the documentary, and actually the kids in uh, the Seifa neighborhood designed their own contraption to put a video camera on a kite. And we had some instructions from Jeffrey Warren, who had done basic photo kite camera work in Peru. And I used that to train these kids to develop a new kind of video camera mounting uh, uh, for the kite. So what you're going to see in this clip is them trying to build a kite strong enough to be able to float a video camera, uh, which has never been done, at least in this part of the world. Um, so let me just play you a part of that. and. We'll see. I think it's important to observe how the kids are working in this DIY culture, what they're saying about their process. Uh, the science of kite making is something that will come up, and the symbolism and poetry of kites for them. So everything they've built is using local materials that they found because paper is prohibited in the Gaza Strip, or at least it was during this time. That's the first test run. All the kids are making fun of it. You can see the green bottle over there is the actual camera they installed under it. That was why it was so heavy.
So I'm just going to forward through this part here, um, if I can get to it, where they're basically this is where they're constructing. So we followed them constructing their kite, the precision they used in it. I asked them questions about why they use certain kinds of um, uh, floaters on the kites. So they understand the physics of kite flying very, very well, and they're very adept at that. So the last part I'm just going to show you is what happens when they flew these kites. This is by the sea. <laughs> they're quite tough kids. Um, this is the girls' team. So they're the boys' team and the girls' team. The girls team is just coming in with their kite. And they had one boy helping them uh, who wasn't very good with glue. <laughs> um, I think he put too much glue. So the kite's got too many holes in it at this point. <coughs> They're, they're getting paper from um, UN distribution centers and from schools. Uh, that's the only institutions that are allowed to import paper. And some of it is handmade as well. And recycled newspaper. So that's, that's Musa's little cheerleading team. barely see it. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. The colors are much darker here. <laughs> yeah, it's much darker. So I, I think I, I just wanted to show this clip to you to give you a sense of where DIY meets civic engagement, especially for these kids. Um, and some of the notions of resilience that some of the most hard-hit communities in a place like Gaza are, are able to withstand through, at least in part, <coughs> by this kind of communal DIY culture. Um, I'll just close with just two or three slides and then we can have a, a conversation about this, if I can find my place again. Um, I, observed an, I observed a number of things of, of intergenerational peer-based learning, as you saw, 
uh, a preference for handmade kites rather than standardized Chinese kites that you could, in some cases, the UN could import. Um, clearly, they understood the dynamics of kite making, but there was a great deal of political symbolism and poetry that these kids attached to these kites. Every kite has a name. In some cases, they wrote long messages on their kites. It was almost a form of media for them. And there's this emerging culture of sharing kite designs through mobile phones, in some cases online for some of these kids, that's starting to happen as well. So one of the projects I'm trying to get off the ground is this DIY kite community for these kids that might be really intriguing uh, to do it in, in conjunction with our documentary. Um, whoa, that's weird. <laughs> Um, well, I'll just tell you that the, the taxonomy that I'm thinking and uh, that I'm developing now and looking at these examples, there's really five key issues for me that I think can explain the, the cycle of DIY production and the ethics and practices of DIY production. And for me, the, the, there's at least all of these resonate to some extent in the examples you've seen. Informal socialized learning is the first one. So you have to use your imagination as you're reading this. Um, imagination and creative play, as you saw. And this harkens back to Edith Ackerman's work on creative play and the work you've seen by Vygotsky and others. Um, remix design and production. In Scratch, remixing was a very important part of it. In kite making, it is just as much. And so, and so in the case of video. Uh, we have to facilitate that and support that. Uh, communal sharing and teaching was very much evident in Scratch. And we've seen it in video and we've seen it in kite making as well. And the last one, which I think we can now bring in critically is critical literacy and civic agency. What role they have to play in these new forms of youth civic DIY practices. Um, it's not just DIY for <laughs> hobby making, it's DIY for critically understanding, reworking, rethinking uh, world around them and having some sense of agency. And I think we can facilitate this sort of framework by different kinds of learning environments, pedagogical tools and platforms. Um, and that, for me, sort of supports this notion that I'm thinking about of critical citizenship. It's not just citizenship, it's critical citizenship where children actually have a voice in changing the political situation they're in. Um, and resilience helps us think through how this taxonomy continues. Uh, resilience is a, is a form of uh, promoting health, well-being, and critical participation. So when you bring this kind of civic agency, DIY cultures, and resilience together, I think it really helps explain, in my mind, um, how critical, critical citizenship uh, might actually play out. Uh, we need new frameworks to advance the status of children as citizens. Um, we need to ad adapt and improve the UN Convention for, for Civic for Rights Among Children. And some of the work that I, was re I found really inspiring is done right here in, at Harvard by Felton er Earls and, and Maya Carlson, uh, who've looked at children and adolescents as deliberative citizens uh, in work they've done in, in Tanzania with HIV AIDS kids and in the violent neighborhoods of Chicago. Uh, so they use the terminology of deliberative citizenship. Uh, in our case, I'm thinking of it as critical citizenship <coughs> to bring media into play. Um, and as part of this, I've been working with researchers here at the Center for Future Civic Media with Leo Bird, Jeffrey Warren, and many others uh, in developing this working collaborative, uh, research collaborative called Department of Play. Uh, we've brought in many practitioners to meet with us and work with us and develop new kinds of tools and, and work with communities in inner city Boston, Brazil, West Bank, and Gaza. And the kind of landmark framework that we'd like to develop, a toolkit, if you might add, is one that allows children to do neighborhood exploration where they can capture neighborhood knowledge through all forms of media, balloons, kite mapping, uh, and, and photography, video, 
represent that local information as spatial narratives um, online as well as through mobile media and then organize civic media enga uh, engagement initiatives in their own communities and reflect on their practices. So one of the initiatives we'd like to launch this year is something called My City, My Future, where we want to have a global design challenge to inspire youth to use these kinds of tools and develop their own DIY tools for neighborhood exploration. Future work for me um, at CMS, hopefully, will be looking at new kinds of mobile tools and platforms and pedagogical frameworks. Uh, for example, if we're talking about children in inner city neighborhoods, like Audubon's work with Kenyan immigrants here, could you develop new kinds of video frameworks like video diaries where children constantly uh, are generating content and relinking it through intergenerational learning uh, in some uh, smart, interesting way rather than these very complex video platforms that require a lot of editing and, and production. And that same kind of platform and toolkit we could use in inner cities and slums and refugee camps where I work. Uh, I'll continue doing studies with my collaborators and researchers on DIY cultures and then try to develop a publication of some sort, a book, if you say, that looks at civic DIY cultures and media resilience among marginalized youth in various international settings. So that's really where I'd like to go with this work. So I'll just stop there. Thank you. Thanks very much. Wonderful, excellent presentation. Uh, do we have questions? And I think we will ask them through the Do you have a mailing list or something for your documentary? Because I totally want to see it when it comes out. Oh, we haven't set that up yet. Okay. But uh, we are, we, we've set up a, a website called flyingpaper.org, and we'll be putting up a lot of the updates. There's, there's a little skeletal framework there, but we'll be putting up you know, little samples and updates on flyingpaper.org. So stay tuned. Okay, thanks. Thank you. So th it's fantastic work. Um, Thank you. And I'm really interested in the the dialogue that occurs between the kinds of literacy that, uh, or the kinds of um, civic media engagement that you're generating and the ecosystem these kids inhabit. We take the storytelling uh, and filmmaking, the video, video making example. Mm -hmm. um, these kids inhabit a space in which they see a lot of models, a lot of, a lot of narratives. Yeah. Um, I don't have any clue of what media access is like in, in Gaza. Um, but I'm very interested, it, does, does your notion of critical literacy have to do with, it, it certainly has to do with the ability to make and remake and tell and express, does it have to do with the new way of looking mm -hmm. at the existing stuff? Could yeah. you say a little more about that? Yeah, yeah. in each of the workshops I conducted, and I, again I look at the West Bank Gaza as a test case, it's not the only place I'd like to work, but it's been a fantastic place to inform the kind of things I'm, I'm doing. In the workshops that I conducted it was very clear that the children were um, they would start out regurgitating existing narratives, what they learned from the newspapers, from the media, from their families. <coughs> and often my, my uh, training team would say, well, they're just mimicking. Uh, uh, shouldn't we tell them to, to stop doing that? Shouldn't we tell them to do something different and be critical? And I said, well, let them go through that process. Let them, let them go through the process of working that out of the occupation, of the, you know, the exile, of, of uh, violence in our communities. Let them work it out. Because I'd, I'd done this now for five years and I knew this is the first thing kids want to talk about. And they think we foreigners who come there want to hear about this. They're really speaking, they're very smart. They're speaking to the international audiences. They want to talk about their misery, their, 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 you know, um, their, their dignity and all of those issues. Now that, that's why in the very beginning I get them to go through that and do it very quickly in a photo kind of project. And then I say, okay, you've gone through this. 
Now do something more original. And let's do neighborhood mapping and figure out what's actually happening in your community. What are water issues in your community? What are issues of gender <coughs> that are happening? What are issues of, um, of, of, of sort of cultural um, um, imbalance that's happened since you know, Hamas took over and so on? And then the kids would do much more investigative work. And they would start creating new narratives. And that only happened when they did neighborhood mapping. And then they would go back, shoot, <coughs> re-edit. And so the process of doing video, I think, is more powerful than just photo, because they're going to, ha they're going to have to go back and re-edit, rework, rethink, act out. And the narratives are much more complex. So <coughs> the kinds of examples you see from their work uh, are much more poetic. Uh, they're much more complex. Um, uh, they're, they're, they're far from being these sequential stories that I would have first expected when I went there. Uh, so if I had time, I would show you some of these examples, but each and every one of them starts to do something very meta in their work. Um, I, yeah. And you have, do you have the sense that they consume existing media the same oh, way? Oh, absolutely. Done? I did, in my survey in Gaza, <coughs> I asked questions of youth about what media do they watch, what media do they use, and very clearly they were watching Turkish soap operas. Syrian soap operas were huge. Uh, they were watching American media. They, they had access to satellite TV. <coughs> they were watching Bollywood. Um, which is why I was very popular in the occupied territories. Um, they're, you know, so they, they're very, very media savvy. Uh, now the problem is they're not producing. And so these kinds of DIY video initiatives, I think ours is not the only one, there are many others that are not cropping up, are helping them think critically now. So when we do our workshops, we actually have a segment of critically watching short films by other kids, by international filmmakers, and doing critical analysis of that media sort of analysis. Uh, and then they do uh, productions, they do, they do scene decomposition, they do shot angles, they do all of this stuff. And they're far more savvy about media than some of my adult trainers are. Um, so yeah, they're, they're very savvy. And this is a problem too, because they know what the media is doing. I have to break them out of that. I have to get them to think about new formats of, of, of media production, new, new genres, I would say. Yeah. Hey, uh, I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about the role of uh, contestation or subversion or that sort of thing in DIY. Uh, earlier in mm. the presentation, you mentioned ham radio and yeah. pirate radio in the same bullet point. But there's really a very important distinction yeah. where the officially legal amateur radio, you're not allowed to have news. You're not allowed to have music. You're not allowed to have anything that would be in any way contestational. And uh, pirate radio is used for supporting protests, for promoting music that's not uh, represented on corporate radio stations and that sort of thing. And when you're working to create frameworks for DIY culture, I, I see a danger that it could start going down the path of ham radio and avoid the path of pirate radio, where pirate radio is the space that might have the revolutionary potential hmm. in, in allowing people to liberate themselves. I th this is a very important point um, you mentioned because Part of why I'm enjoying doing this work that it has a slight subversive element to it, a slight political element that the kids themselves enjoy. When we professionalize it, when we, when we make a platform for the kids to put all their stuff in, uh, when it's no longer indie media, it's, it's, it's CNN's indie media reporters reporting, what does that do to the narrative? And I'm, I'm very conscious of that. And that's why we haven't created this mega platform for all the DIY work that the kids are doing because a lot of it is happening already through MySpace, through YouTube, through Facebook. The kids are already using existing social networks 
to, trans to, to transmit their video. And in fact, something Dana Boyd found in her study uh, on geek culture was the children in Facebook were not really talking about some of the more subversive aspects of their life because their parents were on Facebook. So what were they doing? They were going to MySpace. And in MySpace, they were much more sort of rebellious and subversive than they were on Facebook. So even within existing social networks, there are sort of ways that we act that are very different. And that's very true of radio, and that's very true possibly in the video space. So I might be doing a disservice by building a video platform for the kids. I should let them create a DIY video platform with different social and political agencies. Yeah, thanks a lot. I, I'm curious to hear more about the politics of DIY and uh, I guess, you know, I wonder if there's a way it pushes media studies in new ways, right? That something about DIY versus, like you were saying, CNN. I mean, th there are differences and that overlaps at the same time. Um, and then maybe one of the directions I, I'd be curious to hear is in terms of this notions of intellectual property, mm. right? And, and how that emerges or not. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of the ideas of DIY yeah. is that it's looser, it's more free, yeah. it's for the community, yeah. free software. But then it seems to this idea of authorship and originality and That's who owns right. what quickly right. starts to surface in all kinds of That's settings right. where one might think that it wouldn't be appropriate. But this is a very, back. very interesting area. And actually, I think it's something that I started to scratch the surface on in my dissertation work when I looked at intellectual property and, and uh, communal property rights among s even just students doing design innovations for the public good. They would start out doing these really nice design work shared with NGOs um, in a, se a semi-public um, online space. And then quickly when it became clear that this might be interesting for a media lab sponsor or it might be important, it, might, it could be patentable, they, they would take their innovation into a private space. They would go through the patent process and then bring it back up again. Uh, in some cases, the students would mindfully not do that. They would mindfully contribute it to the public good uh, because they thought the social good was m far higher than commercial good. Uh, and I think these kinds of patterns, and they, they weren't static, they were dynamic. So people would start out with a kind of open source mindset, but they would go off becoming entrepreneurs, and, and, or they would start out the other way around. And it depended on the stakes of the problem, and it depended on who else your peer community was around that project. So if I now transpose this to DIY communities, net network communities today, I think you'll find this phenomena on Instructables, on all of the sites that we looked at. What you find on the sites are the, you know, a trap your boss type, ones that everybody shares very rapidly, but you won't find the ones that actually might give you the next startup uh, easily. Uh, but you'll find nuggets of, of remixing different components that you could develop into something more innovative. Uh, now what happens when people start mixing all of these electronics toolkits and, cr and patent it? So this is where I think uh, Creative Commons has to do something uh, more interesting to preserve uh, DIY innovations. Creative Commons, as everyone knows, has a number of licensing strategies uh, which came out in the early 2000s. And some people are adopting them, but some people aren't even aware of them. So what happens in crafts and knitting communities? Do they attach a Creative Commons license to their knit? Most of them don't. They don't care enough about it. Um, but there might be some lightweight uh, mechanisms to negotiate that. Uh, so I don't think I've answered your question entirely, but it's because we haven't really studied this phenomena enough, which means it's ripe for analysis. Um, and what I would say is that there's this notion of communal property rights that might be very different 
in DIY culture, which has a, some, in some cases an anti-consumer uh, mindset than it might be in open source software or some other community. Well, also, I'm just, I guess I'm interested in how we think about how the culture industry operates very differently from DIY or, or ways that the culture industries then bleed over. I mean, the media culture industry, yeah. You know, Hollywood and, and who owns a song and, and, you know, the little copyright yeah. law that's stapled to our Xerox machines sort of cryptically, yeah. right, implying that you shouldn't be making a copy necessarily. Yeah. No, there's a I, I'm always interested in sort of where that bleed over happens. That mm. in fact we're allowed to make copies of whatever we want, but we got a little copy. Of someone, I don't know who put those stickers on our <laughs> copy machines, but and they they don't say anything except yeah. be scared. You know, there's a there's a law out there, and, and we're not going to explain it. In fact, you're a yeah. so a scholar who can use this stuff, right. but instead we're going to have the. There's shouldn't you be thinking about <laughs> authorship kind of? I, I'm. I'm really intrigued when Henry um, looks at remix cultures and how remix cultures have now become their own um, media phenomena, that they, 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 they themselves have an authorship, and, and how it's become okay to include uh, various clips in a remixed version. But when does it become okay? How much of that clip and, and to what end? Is it for social political mockery? And, and then that does it become okay? So this is, this is a very interesting cultural phenomenon that I think we're going through. When I teach my work, when I was teaching it to the kids in, uh, in our workshops, I sort of initially forbade them to use any other media, you know, found media on the internet. I said, you have to learn about authorship. It's very important. And over time, I started to let, let go of that. And I said, well, actually, they're, they're commenting and critically on this sort of mixed messages they're getting from various political factions and, and so on, by including those soundtracks and those things. And I think it's actually important to let them do that. And so I've had this really tough negotiation process with my own, in my own pedagogical work. Because then when you show the film festivals, they say, well, we can't use that because it has a soundtrack from you know, so and so. So this is a, a moving terrain we're in, um, very much so. Go ahead. Um, so in your in your you were talking about your hypotheses for uh, for sort of what's going on with children and narratives in sort of marginalized or sort of war torn areas, um, and the, so the first one, if I understood it correctly, was sort of that uh, you know that these uh, these narratives are so ongoing that or that that they that helps them mm -hmm. sort of negotiate already, and the last one is that. Uh, there are organizations that are supporting these, the like providing narratives to help support. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you think that you know those organizations are functions of existing in a place that's already had time to grow, grow organizations like that. Um, and if, as a result, um, a, an intervention that you might want to develop is something where, like, you you get on the ground to help develop narratives as quickly as possible. In, in the wake of a of a you know an event like okay okay maybe I'll I'll I'll, com I'll combine my responses if I understand them correctly yes. um, along those lines I guess it's does the infrastructure in the country define what narratives exist um, so how long it's been war torn or mm. and what exists around it easily okay let me try parse that first one. When you say organizations, did you mean uh, political organizations or youth community organizations? Uh, it, oh, they, they can often be political too, but. Yeah. 
Um, right. You, you don't you don't mean politi- you don't mean political parties so much. I don't mean political parties okay. so much as I mean yeah. people who are helping them. But yeah. like, does there have to be a narrative like that already in yes, your culture? Yes, yes, yes. I, th- I think what, what what's very interesting about a place like India or a place like the Palestinian territories is there's a plethora of non-governmental grassroots organizations working in that space. India is the most civic NGO, NGOized place in the world. Has more NGOs per capita than anywhere else, maybe besides Brazil, maybe Brazil is second. Um, so there is this huge sort of narrative coming from, in India's case, where I, I, I come from, uh, of social activism and, 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 and sort of ownership and all of this coming from the NGO culture itself. And that does influence the kind of DIY video media that you see in India. Now, in, in Palestinian context, there's a range of grassroots organizations, both local and international, and they're interested in certain narratives too. There are narratives of you know, ending the occupation of resistance, or there are narratives of peace building and let's all be, you know, let's all come together. And, and those are almost a little bit dichotomous because they're, and the kids are smarter than both of those. Interestingly, the kids make, they mock both of those narratives um, in their films. So if you watch some of their films, they, they, at least through our workshops, uh, always the first film is gonna be, you know, let's take the narrative and let's sort of expand it. And, but the second film is always um, joking about it or critically examining it poetically and so on. Um, so I have a lot of hope in the ways that I've, you know, in Gaza, everyone would say Hamas is pretty dominant. But if you look at the work the kids did, um, it was very much uh, treading this careful line between what is right to say and not to say. And how can you sort of get away with that? How can you talk about human rights issues while criticizing both the government and international parties? Um, so that's, that's a vocabulary the kids, uh, one thing I should say about kids in conflict zones is they're much more mature uh, and they've grown much faster than kids I've met anywhere else. So I also have to be careful about them sort of manipulating my own uh, workshops in ways that they, they find more useful. Uh, so some of the kids are just better at it. Uh, and your question about, can you, can you just remind me? Uh, infrastructure. infrastructure. I guess you address a lot of it with NGO. The, so the NGO is a kind of infrastructure for getting media out mm-hmm. to some extent. Palestine, for example, has very little technological infrastructure, but they have great wireless. Um, so everybody in Gaza is online. Everybody in Gaza is on some social network or the other. Because they can get out, they're doing a lot of blogging. Blogging culture has been big in a place like Gaza, uh, which I would surprise me. Uh, uh, so when I did my surveys with kids, uh, they, they told me about the social networks they were in, uh, what they were doing, and so on. And, and one interesting th- thing that mediated their participation was power cuts. Power cuts happen all the time in Gaza. So their whole social life, online and offline, is, is mediated by power patterns during the day. Um, so that's one part of the infrastructure. Now, Palestine has no state media, so there is no way for them to get their media out through any state channels. So there are all these subversive channels, indie media channels and international channels that the kids try to use. So it's very different. Now, if I look at it in India, it's going to be a very different picture, uh, or in South America. Um, that just started to touch on some of those issues. I think we're, we have time for one more question. Okay. Um, so I just want to see if I can challenge your use of civic agency that you used in, your, okay. in the title. Um, so it seems like most of the examples you gave were positively social. So people would see like 
child's creativity is something probably beneficial for them, um, which is kind of counteracted by other possibly socially negative things like political activism, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the examples you gave, there's also the opportunity for kids to be civically active because they have mentors or parents or organizations working for them. Unlike other children or even adults who are online, both in these marginalized societies, but also in democratic societies who have to work through platforms that are owned by companies. And Mm -hmm. those companies can kind of take away the agency of the users. Um, So do you think that the ability of kids in any part of the world, but it's it's mediated by yeah, that mediation, how much does it play in? I think you pointed out some very critical areas. If you look at the spectrum, and and it's really interesting that you're helping me think through this because there's a spectrum of corporate media to grassroots media that one can examine this in. If we look at the US and corporate media culture here and how kids are expressing their agency versus say Palestine, where there's more grassroots media, and then something in between, like might be Bosnia, where it's fragmented. There's the notion of corporate media and grassroots media is kind of, they're almost at equal planes in that case. So there's very different kinds of agency that both of those might provide. I almost feel like in the case of the Palestinian territories, they have more agency because there aren't, at least in the West Bank, as many channels of control. In Gaza, increasingly, there are more channels of control where Hamas is controlling uh, media in some places, but not as, as effectively. Um, so there's a question of control. But there's a question of, like we were looking at earlier, um, uh, what happens when you create CNN's own indie media channel. There becomes a kind of transformation of what you can present safely in those channels. Um, so the kids do have an infrastructure in some places where they can thrive as civic actors. Uh, more readily because of the NGOs, communal support, and the kind of really independent channels that are available to them. Uh, where I'm saying in the US, it's not really independent. Uh, they're, they're still sort of working within a larger corporate context. Uh, so I think we ha- our analysis has to be very different in each of those places. Brazil might be very different too, uh, where the notion of independent media in Brazil and corporate media is, is, is very different from the way it functions here. Um, Okay, I think we're going to have to call it quits here, but uh, thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you.